This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's been a good few weeks for equality in this country. First, the Supreme Court upheld the tax subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, essentially keeping the law alive by ensuring that no matter what state you live in, you're entitled to tax subsidies to offset purchases of health insurance. Then there was the decision legalizing gay marriages for all citizens, no matter what state you live in. Both victories for equal rights and access to the same rights for all Americans, regardless of geography. Once again, seeing the enormous impact that laws have on our society, Mark, millions of Americans will be able to hold on to affordable health coverage, which was central to the Affordable Care Act. And the marriage equality decision has very interesting implications for the country. Same-sex couples often facing very challenging issues when moving to states where marital status isn't recognized and impacting everything from being able to share health benefits, to adopt children, even visit the spouse in a hospital setting, even at the end of life. The emotional impact of this kind of legal protection, I think, will have a tremendous positive ripple effect throughout the entire country. You're absolutely right, Margaret. And for so many years, same-sex couples have struggled to achieve access to the same basic rights as all Americans, not having to face issues of stigma and exclusion after such a long struggle for acceptance a big win for this country. Well, certainly a momentous turning point for us as a nation. And you know, those those momentous turning points come in many ways. Some are social or legislative. Some of them are scientific. And the mapping of the human genome a few years ago was also a big turning point. It shifted health and medical research into an entirely new direction where personalized medicine can truly be realized. We can be so much more precise. And that's something our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Eric Green is director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institute of Health. The real work has begun to find translational scientific discovery on the DNA of disease. He's leading some exciting work in genomics at the NIH. And Lori Robertson will be stopping by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. Lori is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Eric Green in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The Supreme Court has been busy with matters of health, life, and death. First, the upholding of the tax subsidies and the Affordable Care Act ruling came down. Now all Americans have a right to access those subsidies regardless of their state of residence. Then they upheld the use of a controversial drug approved for use in lethal injections of death row inmates. Several executions were botched due to the drug not working specifically well. It sparked a moratorium on its use until the high court ruled it was okay. And the state of Texas has been attempting to close the state's remaining abortion clinics in roundabout ways by exerting a new ruling requiring facilities to operate more like hospitals. The high court ruled the state was overstepping its bounds. Two years ago, when Texas passed one of the toughest laws in the country regarding abortion, the number of clinics offering procedures dropped from 41 to 19. Many women in Texas who are poor and uninsured use these clinics for all their preventive women's health needs. 
And from Kaiser Health News, the right to marry in any state won't be the only gain for gay couples after the Supreme Court's ruling. The decision will probably boost health insurance among gay couples as same-sex spouses get access to employer plans. That, according to benefits consultants and analysts. How much is unclear, but it's going to increase coverage in a community that has often had trouble getting access to medical services, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. The logic is simple. Fewer than half of employers that offer health benefits make the insurance available to same-sex partners who aren't married. Virtually all of them offer coverage to spouses. And the FDA has made it official no more trans fats in processed foods, though it will take three years for food manufacturers to come into full compliance. The FDA is also looking into the proliferation of vaping or e-cigarettes, seeking comment on whether they should be further restricted. While manufacturers claim they are far less addictive as a nicotine delivery system, a number of studies are mounting now showing they are already leading to an increase in nicotine addiction among teens. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institute of Health. Dr. Green has been at the Institute since 1994 and has been its director since 2009. The Institute is the largest organization in the world dedicated solely to genomics research. Prior to becoming director, Dr. Green led a large research group involved in studying the human genome, including being a start-to-finish participant in the Human Genome Project. Prior to joining the Institute, Dr. Green was professor of pathology, genetics, and internal medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, where he earned his Ph.D. in cell biology as well as his M.D. He is also the founding editor of the Journal of Genome Research and co-editor of the Annual Review of Genomics and Human Genetics. Dr. Green, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Happy to be talking to you. You've played a major role in the the Human Genome Project, uh, completed in 2003, clearly one of the great scientific achievements of the age. And as complex and groundbreaking as that task was, uh, you say it was really just a starting point. And the Human Genome Research Institute uh, was set up as a standalone research arm of uh, NIH in anticipation of significant role that genomics will play in the future. And you've been involved in genomics since the beginning. And tell our listeners, how has the Human Genome Project and subsequent genomic efforts influenced the uh, direction of medical research? And how has uh, the mission of your institute evolved over the years? I would probably describe genomics as transformative in many ways. The, you know, the Genome Project's goal was to create this foundational information resource about our blueprint, um, which then has provided, since its completion 11 and a half years ago, really a context for being able to learn a tremendous amount about how the human body works by knowing more about our blueprint, but also knowing how our blueprint can break, leading to disease. And so it's, it's been just not only something that those of us working in genomics have benefited from, but it's really finding its way across all areas of biomedical research. So, Dr. Green, at a recent NIH gathering, uh, you shared some pretty compelling conclusions of an external advisory group about how all components of NIH manage and use research data. And considering that there are thousands of research programs that are funded by NIH, that sheer amount of data has just got to be staggering. And I think that advisory group said that inaction on NIH's part would border on institutional malpractice by failing to capitalize on the use of biomedical big data. 
How is your institute in the NIH going to approach this issue of the problem or really the opportunity of big data, which seems to be somewhat confounding people in the health and science research space? Yes. I mean, it's a new world. I mean, it's not just a new world for genomics. In fact, it's not just a new world for biomedical research. This big data explosion we see everywhere in, almost, in many, many different disciplines. Genomics has become a bit of a poster child for the biomedical big data challenges. And the reason for that has to do with the technological explosions that have taken place in genomics since the end of the Genome Project, whereby we have these incredibly powerful methods for now reading out our DNA, not just across one human, as we did in the Human Genome Project, but now have done this across tens of thousands of humans. And that creates massive digital data sets that are incredibly powerful to analyze, but that means that we have to get them in the hands of researchers around the world to analyze that kind of data. And that's just genomics data. So what this external group basically concluded was that we're seeing a shift in biomedical research where we're going from being relatively data poor to being data overwhelmed. Hmm. And genomics sort of led the way, but I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that it's just genomics. Mm -hmm. We've had similar technological innovations in imaging um, capabilities, in our ability to um, access electronic uh, healthcare data and clinical data about individuals. And then there's other omics coming down the road besides just looking at DNA, but looking at our proteins and proteomics and our metabolism, metabolomics, and so forth. And so it was the real call to arms, if you will, was a recognition that you know, it was time for NIH to figure out how to go forward in this era of big data that really is about biomedical big data. An, an interesting statistic that um, is that if you go back to 1993, for example, if you took all of the world, .com. which is housed here in a public database called GenBank, 1993 it would fit on one CD-ROM. <laughs> you go to do that today and it would require 400 million four-drawer file cabinets to house all that data. And that's just genomic data. The future of biomedical research is going to be heavily a data science endeavor. And the question we had to ask ourselves is, are we prepared for that future, having been amazingly successful at developing new genomic technologies, new imaging technologies, and better and better ways of capturing people's health data? Well, that aligns with, uh, obviously, as part of the NIH's uh, program that's just launched the Big Data to Knowledge Initiative, or uh, BD2K, as it's called. And... Uh, while your institute's focusing on genomics, uh, you've been talking about the other omics, uh, emerging details in proteomics and uh, and the like. You say the BD2K initiative is focused in improving the biomedical research enterprises. It relates to the big data in the four key areas. Can you tell us uh, what these are and how you see this uh, facilitating more robust uh, data sharing and use platforms. Sure, and this is a very exciting trans-NIH program involving every part of NIH, not even just my institute. You know, the overarching aspect of this program is, as much as anything, to begin a cultural shift in science, in biomedical science in particular, whereby we value the production of data and the sharing of data in a fashion that allows and empowers other scientists to use all the data in very creative ways. And there's a lot of barriers to that. Some are, are cultural, and some of them, and some of them are mechanical, and we're trying to fix all of those things. 
So among the components of BD2K is developing better ways of sharing data and finding data and giving people credit for data that mm -hmm. other scientists are using. Another component is building better software tools. We need to empower all scientists, not just specialists, but all scientists to be able to analyze the data being generated, including data outside of your immediate field. So mm -hmm. if I have a genomics researcher, I want them to be able to analyze imaging data and see how it aligns with some of their genomic data. And if it's so specialized and they can't access that software to get the kind of results they need, that's a problem. So we need to enhance that capability. And then we need to set up a series of sort of centers of excellence, as we call them, where we have major groups whose focus is how to get broader use of these incredibly large data sets and have lots and lots of scientists really around the world analyzing all the world's biomedical research data in creative ways that you know, really wasn't possible before. And so we're funding groups to help really come up with those solutions. You know, uh, Dr. Green, so often on our, uh, our show and in conversations, we come back to the issue uh, at one level, you could call it workforce, right? Who are, who are these people in this uh, new world of big data that are going to do this work. And you've addressed the fact that there's something of a scarcity of data scientists uh, in the marketplace who are equipped to handle this volume of big data out there and the challenges and the opportunities that it pose. I have a feeling that BD2K is also thinking about training, you know, both training people in the field now, training people who are going to come uh, through the field in the future. Maybe you could tell us a little more about how do we, how do we really create this, this next generation of data scientists for this work? No, it's a great question. When I give talks, I sometimes show a slide from an article that was featuring uh, the new opportunities in data science, and I called the data scientist the sexiest job of the 21st century. <laughs> and uh, I showed this article to my teenage children and remind them of that because, indeed, they're the generation that are going to see this thing be reality. So we're thinking about that at NIH for biomedicine. And we're thinking about how do you train the next generation, and, and that's part of the BD2K initiative is to develop new curriculum and develop new approaches to make, you know, a graduate student or a medical student or a pharmacy student and, and you know, all the health professions very facile with analyzing, manipulating big data because that's the world we're going to live in. So part of it is writing the next generation. But let's not forget about the current generation. Mm -hmm. I think about my medical school classmates, my graduate school classmates, and you know, we, we, we all have uh, another couple decades ahead of us in our profession. And, and the fact is the world of big data and data science has come on fast and furious. Mm -hmm. And we were not trained for any of this in graduate school or medical school. So what are, the, what are the things that we could put into place to help mid-career individuals mm -hmm. climb that, uh, that competency ladder, if you will? All these things are important, and all these things we are looking at, and, are, and in fact, are funding uh, programs to, to address both of these areas. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at NIH, where he previously served as scientific director at the Institute and director of the Genome Technology Branch. Uh, we're seeing the world respond to global epidemics from hep C to Ebola, and the scientific community has amped up their efforts to create effective uh, treatments. And while these epidemics uh, are certainly frightening, the truth is 
far more common deadly pathogens that probably will uh, you'll encounter, including antibiotic uh, resistant bacteria that are having devastating effects on human health. And how does genomics play a role in this dash to find treatments or cures for emerging diseases like Ebola and uh, morphine pathogens like antibiotic uh, resistant bacteria? This really represents one of the very beneficial outcomes of the Human Genome Project and subsequent programs. Uh, you know, the Human Genome Project mostly focused on human and another small set of organisms and their genomes. But uh, the immediate programs that followed the Genome Project involved developing new powerful technologies for sequencing DNA, and those can be used to sequence a bacteria or a virus's DNA just as easily, in fact, much easier mm -hmm. uh, than sequencing a human genome because a human genome is much, much bigger than a microbe genome. And so what we're finding is that the cost and also the speed at which you can sequence a microbe is really remarkable now, such that in the case of the recent story with Ebola, we are able to sequence, and our, one of our investigators, a good colleague of ours, did just this study, got some of the early isolates from Ebola outbreak and quickly sequenced the genomes of those isolates, and with that gave immediate information mm -hmm. about uh, sort of the origins of it and some of the patterns of transmission that otherwise might have taken months, if not years, to figure out. So in we can get real-time readout of what's going out in an infectious outbreak like Ebola. Now what's happening in with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, where we think we know what the routes of transmission are, now you can do detective work by sequencing the isolates as they appear in different patients. And as we've seen story after story, surprises uh, come about where you figure out that what you thought was happening is not really what's happening. And that teaches us immediately how to better contain some of these outbreaks mm -hmm. even within a hospital. Dr. Grant, I'd like to take a look at what I, I think if we look back over the arc of time uh, since 2003 and the conclusion of the Human Genome Project, one of the real promises seemed to be the concept of personalized medicine or precision medicine, as some people call it where each of our unique genomes would be the guide for the treatment protocols tailored to fit us specifically. And while the cost of sequencing uh, one's own uh, genome has come down significantly, it, it seems as though this reality is still a long way off, or at least it's not spoken about as part of our current practice pattern. What is the state of the science at this point about personalized medicine? Yeah, I actually might slightly disagree with you in that I actually think it is starting to be here and now. And I, I might just point to the Angelina Jolie story uh -huh. as an example where there's a situation when she came, was very public about this mm -hmm. and it illustrated a situation where she has a, a change in her genome that makes her, in a well-known gene, mm -hmm. that makes her susceptible to breast and ovarian cancer. I would actually say go look on the newsstands and you'll see a big, thick, special issue of Time magazine all about DNA and genomics and how DNA shapes our life. I see routinely, at least in the Washington, D.C. area now, cancer treatment centers and healthcare networks, and they're using the word genomics in their advertisements that are streamed into your mm -hmm. living room. Those examples are some of the low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. and I would immediately tell you that you know we're maybe 1% of the way towards implementing personalized medicine, genomic medicine, precision medicine, whichever word you want to use. The best is yet to come. But in areas like cancer, and it's here and now for some kinds of cancer. Another example is pharmacogenomics, big word, pharmacology and genomics. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason we all respond to medications differently is because of differences in our genomes that influence how we metabolize drugs. 
and for more and more drugs, we're figuring out who are the good responders versus the bad responders by reading out specific parts of the genome. And I think the other area that's here and now for precision medicine has to do with these rare cases of, of diseases that sort of stump clinicians, these diagnostic odysseys mm -hmm. that often, often involve children, but sometimes adults. You know, now for a few thousand dollars, you can read out their mm -hmm. genome sequence, and in a fair percentage of the case, you can figure out what's wrong with them. Dr. Green, we had your uh, colleague, uh, NIH Dr. Uh, Dr. Francis Collins, on the show a while back. He expressed some grave concerns about the cuts uh, to funding for NIH research and the impact it would have on future research. It's always had a history of uh, being supported across the board, and that seems to have changed. And, uh, you know, you and Margaret were talking earlier about the sort of uh, group of young people that we want to come into this field, and they, they don't do it for the money for the most part, but money does help. So give our listeners an assessment of what's happening in the state of scientific research funding, including genomics and the impact these budget cuts are having on the present and future research protocols at NIH. It's not a good situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, and as an American, you know, America led in genomics during the Human Genome Project. Some of these spectacular technological advances I've talked about that have come about in the last uh, 11 and a half years since the Genome Project ended have been brought about by generous uh, support of investigators in the private sector, which is, was also met by uh, a granting program we had here that's led to that. And yet, if we look around, uh, the, where the countries are really increasing their commitment to research and genomics research in particular, it's not the United States. And we risk ceding our lead in this area if we're not careful. If you actually look at what's happened to our budget over the last decade, our purchasing power has uh, basically dropped by 25%. So overall, we have 25% less dollars to do our science with than we did a decade ago. And this is at a time where we should be filling up our fuel tank, uh, not, uh, not starving it. Absolutely. It is really not a good situation. The first outcome is we're just not making advances as mm -hmm. quick as we could. But the second consequence is that we are scaring off the next generation because we are not convincing them that this is a value in the United States and that there's going to be opportunities for them to run their laboratories or mm -hmm. to conduct the kinds of clinical studies that are going to be needed in the future. And so it's hard to give encouraging signals to the next generation when they look at these curves and they see these trends and they say this is not going to be supported well in the United States. Well, Dr. Green, I suspect that part of your motivation for creating a very popular exhibition with the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington might have been to create the kind of public excitement and awareness among the population at large about the uh, importance and the excitement of this work. I think some three million visitors have already seen the interactive exhibit, The Genome, Unlike Unlocking Life's Code, which is now on the road for four to five years. Can you maybe just share some of the highlights from that exhibition? You know, 25 years ago or so when I got involved in genomics, it was really just scientists that thought about it and talked about it. I think if you fast forward to today, the public is starting to hear the word genomics because the public is seeing it communicated through healthcare professionals when they have to talk about cancer or when they're talking about a certain drug they might get. So genomics is becoming part of the language of society, and therefore we felt part of our obligation in leading genomics in the United States is to think a little bit uh, about genomic literacy. And so we formed a partnership with the Smithsonian to put on this exhibition because we are now convinced that genomics is important for day-to-day -day life. Um, and in particular, your health care. 
And so this exhibition um, is, it was marvelously successful while it was opened here in the Washington, D.C. area. But we also wanted to get it around the country. And so it's now on a four to five year tour to basically have a lot of people see it. And it's, it's really, it's been very gratifying to do the project. And we've gotten very positive feedback that indeed the public is mm-hmm. engaged in what they're learning and really see its relevance. We've been speaking with Dr. Eric Green, Director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the NIH. You can learn more about their work by going to genome.gov. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us in Conversations on Healthcare today. Great. Nice talking to you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Every three months, we take a look at what we call Obama's Numbers, a statistical record of Obama's time in office. And that now includes an update on how many have gained insurance under the Affordable Care Act. The administration says that 16 million people have gained coverage because of the law. That number is based on polling by the Gallup organization and includes an estimated 14.1 million adults who gained coverage from October 2013, the start of the first open enrollment period for the ACA exchanges, through the beginning of March of this year. The other 2.3 million in the administration's total are young adults aged 19 through 25 who previously gained coverage after the law began requiring that insurance plans allow children to remain on their parents' plans until age 26. The National Center for Health Statistics, meanwhile, estimated that only 11.9% of all Americans lacked health insurance at the time they were interviewed last year. That's down from 14.4% in 2013. But it still leaves an estimated 37.2 million without insurance. The NCHS numbers are preliminary, based on interviews conducted during the first nine months of 2014. The Urban Institute's Health Reform Monitoring Survey looks at the uninsured who are ages 18 to 64. In that age group, an estimated 9.7 million gained coverage between September 2013 and December 2014, according to the quarterly survey. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. During the school year, some 21 million American children receive free or reduced-priced lunches through their schools, often the healthiest meal these children eat during the school day. Yet, once school is out, only 10% of these children participate in the free meal programs during the summertime. And studies have shown that many of these kids tend to gain a significant amount of weight over the summer as a result. A group of researchers at the University of South Carolina sought to tackle that issue with a program they developed called the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge. They deployed the program at a number of large community-based summer day camps, and lead researcher Dr. Michael Beetz says they relied on a simple known fact about kids. They love competition. Staffers during the first snack period would ask kids to hold up the fruits or vegetables or water that they brought, and staffers would then 
count the number of kids that brought those items and assign them points. You get a point for a fruit, a point for a vegetable, a point for bringing in water. And then throughout the course of the week, everybody's group points are tallied. And then at the end of the week on Friday, when they get together to do an assembly, they announce the winner of the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge for that week. And so there is this competitive process. Dr. Beast says the simple competition and group reward system created a dramatic shift in the average camper's lunchbox from chips, cookies, and sugary drinks to more fruits, vegetables, and bottled waters. We saw some pretty dramatic increases in the proportion of kids that brought fruits and vegetables and water into the summer day camps, which were the things that we targeted with the, through the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge messages. But then on the back end, we also saw that they also reduced the things that we didn't want them to bring in without even saying, please reduce these things. And so kids are not just bringing additional fruits, vegetables, and waters, including all the other stuff. They're substituting these, these healthier items for the less helpful items. The study, published in the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, showed a dramatic shift in the kids' homemade lunches with this really simple and inexpensive incentive program. They see this as a model for summer day camps across the country, which serve some 14 million children per year, often in underserved areas. The next phase of the study will look at the actual weight and body mass index of kids in the next round of campers to calculate the impact on lowered weight gain. So in the, in the study with the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, we really were just doing a proof of concept. Can we get kids to change the foods that they're bringing in? In our next studies, which are going to be larger, that will incorporate the Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, we will also be tracking BMI from the beginning to the end of summer to see if these interventions, which if those have any perceptible effect on changes. The Healthy Lunchbox Challenge, a simple competitive challenge and reward system designed to get kids to switch out high-fat, high-sugar, high-calorie foods from their diets in favor of healthier snacks and beverages, empowering them as well as their families to make better food choices. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.